Welcome to Biota.org Interviews. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today, something completely new for Biota.org Interviews, a conversation between three and possibly more, if more come on board, artificial life developers with regards to a fundamental question. What is the meaning of artificial life? Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Gerald de Jong, whose Darwin at Home project continues through blogs and podcasts and a number of amazing strides, including a new planet, Gerald. Can you give some background to that, please? Oh, oh I'd be happy to. It's just a, it's just a start, unfortunately. I haven't, been got, I haven't gotten uh, much further than that. But uh, what I'm working on now is I'm trying to combine uh, the stuff I did with Darwin at Home with another project, which is an agent platform. So then, you, then I can have uh, sort of uh, Darwin at home bodies inside of agent uh, software. So then they have a, a means of communication with each other, and they can uh, they can be autonomous, and they can have strategies and things like that. You know, sort of like the brain level, but then using the body somehow. So that's sort of what I'm dreaming of getting to, where um, different different you know sort of bodily behaviors could evolve and then be recruited by uh, by a, a similarly evolving uh, thinking system. We also have Dave Kerr with us who has just launched a new company in order to bring together AI planets there and various other developments. Dave, can you give some background to this? About four, five years ago, made Artificial Planet. And now I'm trying to make a living at it. It's basically why we set up the company, Naturally Intelligent. We have kind of diverged a bit from the, the true artificial life and more focusing on, I guess, artificial intelligence. But it's still near and dear to my heart. Now, bearing in mind that you're probably pitching to about 500 investors currently, what would you pitch Naturally Intelligent as a company that you would want to invest into? Well, we'd pitch it as as a computer game company in the sense that we'd make boxed products or online products that people would buy and they'd be entertaining and they would focus on sort of artificial life in the most generic sense of managing lots of creatures in a fun way. Now is there an open source component to this at all or is it all proprietary? A lot of it is built on open source but we're moving towards proprietary, but we still like open source, and that's our ultimate goal, is to release everything we do eventually as open source. We do have a question coming up in the future with regards to open source and artificial life, so I, I think you'll certainly be involved in that question as well in terms of the transition either from proprietary to open source or from open source back to proprietary. But what is your thinking on that currently? I'm a really big fan of open source but it hasn't paid off for me personally. I'm trying to make a living at what I'm doing, at what I love doing, and open source. Maybe I haven't utilized it in the proper way, but it hasn't generated enough income for me in the form of donations or anything else. So we're just trying a different approach, the more traditional, keeping the source closed in some of our programs. Although with Air, we're trying a new approach where you can subscribe to the code base for a small fee. That model works actually quite successfully with a lot of the transitional projects. So, um, I should introduce myself as well. I'm Tom Barbelay. I've developed the Noble 8 simulation for coming close to 11 years now. Various other things I do, including I'm the current editor of biota.org, which I have Gerald to thank for because Gerald... Darwin at Home project as it initially started so overwhelmed Bruce Damer that he said to me, can you please take on uh, biota.org in a kind of editorial capacity? So I've been doing that for probably about two years now and you've heard me in various other podcast interviews and I also have an o my own podcast for Noble Ape called Ape Reality which I've refloated and changed the format slightly to make it a bit more succinct and also get out relevant information with Noble Ape as opposed to discussive ramblings which tend to be the case with these podcasts. Anyway, speaking of ramblings at least, the question at hand is the meaning of artificial life and I think this is a definitional question for all the following podcasts of these biota.org conversations. If I could start with Gerald, what would you say the meaning of artificial life is? Um, that, it, it's something that's uh, 
to be determined. It's something that we can just go ahead and define somehow. It's I'm I'm I really don't consider uh, myself to have a, a sufficiently good definition right now, and I, I don't think you can look it up and and find the definition of it. it I'm, you know, you could say uh, it's something that uh, in some way imitates real life or biological life, and in in that way you'll you know there there are. Uh, feeble attempts here and there to do a bit of that, but of course it's nowhere near the the complexity of of nature. Which nature, of course, has the luxury of working with uh, with uh, you know uh, massive parallel uh, atoms. And uh, in the computer, you're of course simulating, so you have to sort of work on a different time scale or uh, limit your view to certain aspects and ignore all the rest. So the question of the degree to which something is artificial life could be, I'm sure, discussed, but it's not a black and white thing. I don't know if we have any yet, anything that, that we could call artificial life. On the other hand, you could also say we've got loads of it already. Just depends on how you define it. And Dave, what's your thinking on the definition of artificial life? Well, it kind of blows my mind when I got posed that question last night. But I've been thinking about it. And I think maybe the meaning of artificial life is to have artificial sex. And then, like, it's the production part of it. I was just kidding. Well, in, if that's the case, then we've got lots of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd never thought of it that way. I've never thought of it that way. Or, But you know what I mean, like, artificial reproduction. Certainly. But that's not really, I guess, the meaning of artificial life. It'd be more like... Yeah, like whole... Artificial reproduction, you could also say, is a mem copy. Okay. That's reproduction. It's uh, artificial. Yeah, and it leads to evolution, and evolution seems to be the fundamental process that we're trying to assimilate, because that leads to life. I think, as Gerald has noted, it's a very difficult thing to define artificial life. I think there are a number of things that it isn't, and in laying out this podcast, I thought we could explore some of the things that it isn't, but could easily be thought of as being what it is by a novice or someone coming to it for the first time. But I think certainly through our discussion, Gerald made this statement, which I thought was quite profound, that there is an element of the artist in what we are trying to do with artificial life, that it's not science, but it's in fact art, because what we are trying to do through observation is recreate particular aspects of life and what we are doing. But moving on to the kind of broader series of ideas, the only definition I can see currently is by pointing at artificial life developers. It's in fact a self-referential definition currently. That, that's, I think that's interesting because it frees you from having to define it as, um, as uh, you know, trying to uh, get something done instead, in, or you know, trying to imitate. You're, you're, not, you're not defining it as being trying to imitate. What you're doing is you're just focusing on the people who are doing it and looking at the projects and sort of letting people define it for themselves, I guess. It's the Wikipedia model fundamentally. Yeah. So who knows what the definition may, definition is? It might change next year. Although things have a certain semantic momentum. Imagine you're a new artificial life developer, and you come to artificial life, and you want to start an artificial life project. And I think this is the the, the descriptive model that certainly I used with Jay Lemon in, in in discussing what he's doing with Wikipedia. But the idea is that you come to artificial life, you read something about it, maybe you read Dawkins or you read a collaborative collection of works or you read a number of the other authors that write about artificial life. Or alternatively, you see something like Star Wars, the newer Star Wars, that used aspects of artificial life in the combating and, and various other things, and you think, how did they do that? And then you come to artificial life. So there are a number of ways that you come to artificial life as a, as a novice looking to develop. But what do you then take from the meaning of artificial life in terms of moving forward with the development? Now, Gerald has proposed that what you do is you look at the history of artificial life in some regard, or you follow the momentum or the historical narrative that you see through what has gone on so far. My thinking is that it could go that way, or it could go almost tangential to that in terms of you bringing in new ideas. What's your thinking on that, Dave? There's definitely room, definitely room for someone to just come in and sit down and create something completely new from scratch. Yeah, so the question comes up, the question comes up, is it imitative, you know? Are we trying to imitate something? Well, I think we are, because basically we're trying to code what we know of nature into the computer.
Why are we also trying to uh, see what directions it goes when it's not uh, when it's not limited by you know uh, sort of parochial physical constraints? Yeah, that's true. But are we bound to those constraints because we are part of them? Like we're made of these processes? Or well, the one of the reasons I made uh, uh, Darwin at home. Uh, uh, you know, working like 3D space is just to make it sort of convincing to people. Yeah. You know, see to make the movements convincing. That's the only real rationale. It could be in any dimensions. Well, I think the the appeal of a life is that you could create something, and it could become more than what you've created. Yeah, what exactly. You can imagine. Yeah, and that almost requires evolution again. Wouldn't you agree? Definitely. There are two parts. There is a gestalt, which is this idea that you're trying to create more, and then there is contemporary theories with regards to all these things. And I think what's fascinating, particularly with the question of evolution, is that I see artificial life as being a number of components of which evolution is a part, but there's also entropy, there's a lot of physics if you choose to model it in that direction. And there are a number of ways that you can come to artificial life where the genetic and evolutionary components are implicit rather than explicit. And this has certainly been my own thinking in creating a kind of superproof, which is, for people familiar with Brig Kleiser's interview in the feed, what Brig is talking about in, in an abstract sense, I think. Others, others may disagree. But I think the idea of, of, of creating testable and provable means of evolution and showing evolution actively is central to what people do with artificial life. But the idea of pre-programming that evolution and creating ways to create that evolution, I think, is a fascinating question that people may come to through their own artificial life development where it's not explicitly programmed. What's your thinking on that, Gerald? Are you saying it can be implicitly programmed? I, I found that with Noble Ape. I started out with no genetic programming explicitly. I started out with a basic energy simulation method and then from the energy simulation method, I had lifespans, I had genetic inheritance, I had all these things that were given to me implicitly. Oh, wait a second, wait a second, wait, hold on there. How'd you get genetic inheritance? Well, I had implicit genetics. I had genetics that maintained through basic descriptive means, but they were in no way central to movement. It wasn't, uh, they weren't genetic algorithms in a, in a similar way to explicitly written... But but you had you had you had creatures that lived or died, did you not? Certainly, that's my point. That's exactly my point. And they reproduced. Exactly, exactly. And they and they survived, or they they didn't survive, depending on how uh, difficult it was to survive given their context. It, very true, but there wasn't. Well, that's evolution. That's you, you've created evolution. It, no, exactly, exactly. That's exactly my point. But I did it through microevolution. It sounds it sounds fairly explicit to me, Tom. I don't know. I mean, I, when I look at Darwin at home, I see very explicit genetic programming, and I think there is there is a it, this is this is an interesting question. I, I agree that I'm more explicit about it, but the things that you've just described, which I didn't really understand until now, are just uh, you know just the the building blocks that you need. I just I've just done it with more of a focus on on uh, on you know um, evolving sort of in a linear way, you know, sort of uh, too straightforward to be realistic. Certainly. Uh, for example, there's no uh, there's no sexual reproduction, and uh, actually, most importantly of all. Um, Darwin at home creatures do not interact with each other. You know that's just out of the question at the moment. So you know I've been I've been just uh, uh, sort of limiting my exposure to all sorts of different complexities that that you've been working on. But you've done also in your system, as far as I'm concerned, explicitly evolution. I know, I know. This, I know yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm. It's not that I'm trying to promote Briggs Prize in any regard, but I think his discussion is fascinating, and my concerns in terms of creating proof relate to looking at things that as fundamental as possible and you're right what, what are you talking excuse me what are you trying to prove what's the proof that you're talking about in terms of the growth uh, what dave was saying in terms of the idea of the gestalt that you get more out than you put in okay so that, that would that's a proof of no no i'm i mean my thinking is and this needs to in some way be tethered to the uh, <laughs> the topic but my thinking is that there are a number of ways that one can come to artificial life. And there is both just explicit genetic programming and there is also uh, an implicit genetic programming in some regard as well. Now, this could be a naive construction on my part, and you're perfectly welcome to deconstruct me in, in the podcast. 
but I think there is a means of approaching artificial life which can show evolution without predetermining or creating an evolutionary construct uh, explicitly. It can be more or less explicit, but uh, all you have to do is just uh, go puzzling and looking around for the building blocks, and, and, uh, and the things you were describing were exactly those. Certainly, certainly. You know, a, a survival differential and a genetic mechanism, and, uh, you know, bingo. Certainly, certainly. But I think there are... Yeah, it sounds, sounds easy. <laughs> it sounds easy. But I think you're right. Yeah, well, of course, it, it's, it's a lot more complex than that. But I'm just saying, um, you know, those are the, fund, those are the foundations of exactly a, a genetic algorithm. So, uh, you know, call it that if you want, but it is one. Certainly. But if you were to put your finger on a genetic algorithm in Noble Ape, it would be very, very difficult, aside from the pure point of, of reproduction. Uh, that's, just a question, that's just a question of obfuscation, Tom. It, well, true, true. But what I'm, what I'm trying to do is make space and time the obfuscating medium as opposed to the code specifically. But I think... No, yes, that's very noble of you. <laughs> but no, I think there are a number of different directions that people can come to that end up with artificial life. And I think the idea of... And Dave has come to it from this direction as well in terms of group intelligence... I mean, when you started AI Planet, you were looking for some means of creating group intelligence too, weren't you, Dave? Group intelligence? Well, like swarming intelligence, creating groups of objects that were interacting in, in a dynamic way that replicated aspects of life. Yeah, definitely. Well, you want to see birds in flocks, voids, and you want to see them interact with each other and not bump into each other, all that stuff. Although I wouldn't necessarily call that artificial life because it is heavily, explicitly programmed to do the things it does. You're an intelligent designer, then. Yes. <laughs> so the question then becomes, does artificial life require some connection to evolution and g genetics in order to be artificial life? Gerald, what's your thinking on that? I believe it does, because... Uh, um it's the um, it's the sort of the surprise element that that makes people use the word life instead of not uh, using the word life. You know, for example, uh, if you go right back to the beginning, the the thing that's actually been called life for many many years, Conway's life. You know, the cellular automaton thing, where you have uh, sliders and you have all sorts of bizarre interactions that are you know on the cusp of being uh, chaotic, but you know they're also very very perfectly organized and, and utterly deterministic. So that was you know a sort of a surprise to watch. Conway's life develop and it, it it still carries the name life you know it's a bizarre uh, little coincidence that that uh, that that was found and um, you know uh, it, it doesn't it, once you've got that and you've you've seen that then you've seen all sorts of surprising behavior but you're seeing it not change so what do you look for in artificial life as the second step you look for uh, surprises does that require explicit genetics I believe so so when Dave created AI Planet without explicit genetics, are you saying that he wasn't creating an artificial life project? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, it's, it's explicit is a question of what the message is, what you want to describe. You know, if you if you describe it, if you frame it as a as an evolution uh, situation, then uh, then that's the focus. If you um, put the elements of an evolution uh, uh, of a genetic algorithm into your software without understanding it as such, that's fine too. You know, that's no big difference. It's just that, you know, in, re in retrospect, you can always, uh, you know, analyze what came out of it and say, well, yeah, this is uh, a result of the genetic algorithm that's represented here. And, that's, and then you can ask yourself whether that's why people started to call it artificial life or not. I'm not sure. Right. Dave, did you consider putting genetic algorithms in AI Planet at all? Um, no, because at the time, I didn't even know what they were. As you know now, I mean, you, you've talked at periods of creating an AI Planet 2, and this may be contingent on funding or a wide variety of things, but if you were to reprogram it with what you know now, so to speak, would you include genetic algorithms in it explicitly? Yes, I would. I wouldn't use them as the only means to create artificial life, but they would be one of the one of the things that various creatures would have access to. It's an excellent refinement mechanism. Yeah, but the thing is, it's really good to to run like a huge simulation and then see the results after with a genetic algorithm. 
not necessarily so good if uh, you're waiting hours for each each generation to come out of the next one. Well, Gerald's used the internet very successfully with Darwin at home to eliminate some of this time component by basically making it massively parallel, haven't you, Gerald? Yeah, that's uh, effectively what's happened, and it's actually been uh, quite relaxing because what I do is I put that uh, stuff up on the website, and then uh, and then I go about my normal life, which I normally have to do. I have children and and uh, I have a job and everything, so. Um, so then I uh, I just put it up on the website and I check it out after a month or so and it's full of all sorts of evolved creatures, which is really nice and relaxing. Wonderful. So the model for people with families who are interested in getting into artificial life is to make some large network component, basically, to their development. Well, it takes a little bit of effort to make it all, uh, you know, web-enabled in that way and, uh, you know, make it sort of save the results in one place but uh, calculate them on everybody's PC. And uh, you know, once you've got that working, then it's uh, then it, it's uh, you don't have to uh, you know concentrate on the on the uh, you don't have to buy the buy the CPU cycles. Certainly. Now, if we if we move a kind of step back to what we came to in a definitional sense, I think of artificial life in terms of there's a gorilla aspect to it as well. This is a UE gorilla um, in terms of the fact that you produce something that you can then present to people who may have hostility towards to various views of science and evolution. And then through play and through interaction, they then get something far greater and self-reflect on their own understanding and belief system. If someone came to an artificial life development that was critical of some of these narratives of evolution that we've discussed, how do you think you can create an artificial life project that resolves well resolves their concerns is perhaps completely the wrong thing blows their mind fundamentally without returning to the question well a human created that software nothing software wise is going to convince someone who doesn't want to be convinced uh, or doesn't you know isn't open for convincing it's it's another it's yet another exploration into uh, you know what might have uh, brought about you know the existence of life on Earth, and and uh, and the existence of the people who are asking the question. So, uh, it's just another exploration into that. And and like with Darwin at Home, for example, I've done a, a you know a very very simple, tidy, uh, disgustingly tidy uh, evolutionary process, but you know authentic in every other respect. It's just very very simple environment and. Uh, it's you know it's ringed out, uh, ringed of all uh, of all the um, all the complexities that uh, that are not absolutely necessary. So you can see in Darwin at home an an, uh, an algorithm sort of discovering things, and you can experience that at home. So then you go home and you think, well, algorithms can discover things. All right, and then you think, well, maybe. Uh, Maybe you know it's just a suggestion. It's just an, yet another example. If you were to go uh, stare at an anthill for a while and 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 think really hard, you might uh, you might also uh, you know reach the same conclusions. What's your thinking on this, Dave? The, as the original question, I think you meant if you sh how would you convince a creationist to believe in evolution with a life? As that was. Well, is, is the potential to sow the seeds of disbelief through an A-Life project? I think it's possible, but it completely depends on the individual. Say you did make this amazing, mind-blowing simulation proving evolution, you'd have to get the guy to watch it, which might require a day. There, I've had discussions with a number of people about uh, about computers and uh, what computers can accomplish, and a lot of people uh, have sort of stuck at the argument, uh, yeah, a computer can only do what people can do because people program them. And, uh, you know, uh, doing evolution on a computer is sort of a counterexample to that. So that helps with that sort of argument. But I think you might be able to convince them of their own beliefs if you showed them a big Adam and Eve simulation. I think that would blow their mind, too. Sounds like uh, that'd sell, too. Well, we know where to get working in order to keep Dave writing open source. Uh, but I think more, more seriously, this is in part what I see Brute phrasing, and I probably brought a, a large part of my own interpretation to Briggs Prize and other, other questions. But I think this is uh, you know, a central question of if we are creating artificial life 
in some means as an experiment to ourselves, then we can do whatever we want. But if we're creating artificial life as some means of educating, uh, and this was put to me by, um, the acronym is SEUL, it's an open source initiative to get open source software into schools that Mobile Ape has been a part of for probably the better part of five, six years now. The question was put to me, if this was put in a school that was sympathetic to creationism or a wide variety of other counter-science beliefs, would it be a kind of seed of disbelief that could get in and actually get the students actively thinking? And in terms of the language that's used in artificial life development, this got me thinking myself about, well, if you're going to do that, if you're going to create a covert op and use artificial life as a covert op to get into these kind of environments, how do you need to preface artificial life in that context in order for people to be receptive to it? I don't consider it to be particularly covert. Well, this is interesting because can it be something that is covert or will it always be explicitly defined in such a way that these kind of people will never be receptive to it? It's an exploration of what an algorithm can do. And when you know what an algorithm can do, you might imagine an algorithm working in the physical world. So it opens up possibilities in your mind for another explanation of how things came about. You know, it's, there's, there's no way around it. It's no big surprise. I think they'd be more interested in Zoo Tycoon. You'd have to infiltrate that. I agree. <laughs> that's, another, that's another pertinent question, because particularly with the release of Spore, if it happened sometime this year, there's some discussion, and Dr. Zach has talked about this in his podcast too, Evolution 101, that the interaction, the playful interaction that people get with games, which have, appear to have artificial life components, in, in fact, is supportive to a certain belief system in some regard. Do you think the human interaction can ever be, uh, I want to use the term normalised to make it sound like noise, but do you think the human interaction with artificial life can ever be made to, to be a purely neutral entity in terms of the movement of artificial life? Mm -hmm. I think so. Uh, well, just, uh, yeah, I mean, Dave admitted to be an intelligent designer, so... <laughs> But I think there's also the case to be made of someone at least setting up the initial conditions and letting it run, coming back a year later and having something that's pretty much void of any human direction that could have evolved. The human interaction with regards to artificial life systems could easily be used as someone who is critical to artificial life systems to say, well, not only is it written by a human, but there are also a whole lot of other humans that are prodding it in various directions, so what are you really trying to prove? And my question to you is, does all the human interaction cancel out in terms of describing any form of intelligence because people will be moving them in different directions, or is this actually something that, that we need to explore and address? I... Um really don't know. I mean, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't really matter too much uh, what, uh, what exact, uh, uh, you know, behaviors that Darwin at Home produces, for example. It, just, it doesn't matter what comes out of it, particularly. It's not going to prove anybody's point. I'm not going to be able to say, see, this is why the dinosaurs came into existence. You know, I've got no conclusions to be made about the biological world. And, and, you know, at the same time about biological evolution. Can't really say a lot about that. I can't say def definitively that, look at this, you know, evolution is true because Darwin at home is true. It just doesn't follow directly. It's an interesting problem. What's your thinking on it, Tove? Well, I think that no matter what you do, there's going to be a skeptic or a cynic who will write everything off as it being generated by humans. But there's still, there's still a case to be made because I think it can prove... Not necessarily. I don't think it can disprove creationism or prove a godless world or prove evolution in all its forms, but I think it can prove an evolutionary process because you could simulate some of the fundamentals and because we can't really go back in time and witness those things happening, it might be the best proof we have that those processes were possible and probable. So we're saying that basically artificial life really has more a kind of hobbyist context than any kind of broader 
descriptive scientific context. Am I right in hearing that, Gerald? Well, you're talking to the, the to the right group of people to talk about, uh, you know, hobbyist and non-science because none of us do science with it. You know, I'm, and there are there are all sorts of efforts being done at different universities with genetic algorithms and neural networks and you name it. Uh, all these academic conferences and they're they're you know beating their heads against the wall to write the next paper on the subject. You know, this is a different domain. So what we're what you're talking to here is just a, a small group of people who do some sort of stuff that's. Uh, you know, it could be misconstrued as science, but really it's sort of uh, uh, tinkering. Yeah, it's more, uh, because, more philo philosophers. Yeah, philosopher tinkerers. Armchair philosophers. Um, I, I agree entirely, and I want to stress to people listening to the podcast that we do actually have real living scientists that have expressed an interest in being in this podcast, and they will definitely be in later podcasts. I think we have a number... That's better, better than dead ones. <laughs> We can try to resurrect the dead as well, but I think we've touched on a number of uh, interesting topics already. So, in terms of our exploration... The university degree, Tom, does that make you a scientist? This is an interesting question. What's that? Sorry, I missed that. Well, I have a uh, university degree in science. I think we all have university degrees in science, don't we? Yeah, but that was that was just... Uh, now you're just employing that to uh, yeah. to su support your art. <laughs> you're, just, you're just whoring your scientific background to produce art, that's all. Back off, man! I'm a scientist. How about how about the artists that that hold themselves out as scientists? I mean, I think I think it's an interesting question and one which we are going to explore in the very next podcast. I need to point out to the to the dear listeners, those that are still listening. But it's an interesting question with regards to the meaning of artificial life. Is that are we constraining ourselves to the in the in the Venn diagram of all things in terms of evolutionary systems, in terms of genetic algorithm programming for practical uses and things like that? Are we the part of the Venn that is exclusively just armchair philosopher hobbyist tinkerers, or is there a component of artificial life that in fact feeds back into science and is beneficial in that regard? What's your thinking on this, Gerald? I really don't know. I mean, uh, I've I've sort of, uh, I, it's kind of paradoxical because I presented Darwin at Home uh, now twice at academic conferences, but I really don't... Uh, um, feel that much at home at the academic conference because of the, the you know, the, uh, the sort of uh, less than scientific approach that it actually all represents. You know, uh, scientific people are measuring things all the time, and I would have to produce all sorts of, uh, you know, figures and facts and uh, numbers and uh, and theses and disproval, approval of, of you know, uh, of particular uh, hypothesis on on uh, some some very specific issue of whether evolution is actually happening or not or something like that you know it's a very different so I'm, you know it, we're not in the world of scientists we're tinkerers we're also you know artists sort of so we're sort of in the in the middle uh, when you originally asked the question of what the meaning of a life was like there's a little area we haven't covered yet um, well there's uh, two perspectives I kind of have on this question and the meaning of a life for the a life itself which is perplex perplexing enough and I think we kind of covered most of that and the other aspect is what is the meaning of a life for us like will a life teach us something about ourselves or help advance science like biology but one thing that really interests me is will it give us like a new form of companionship in a similar sense to the relationship between dogs and humans. I yeah. just imagine Dave talking to his artificial life when he's an old guy in the, in the, in the old folks' home. You've got to get married, Dave. You really do. I mean, that's all I have to say on that one. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's some kind of survival instinct we have to build this A life because we know one day in the far future we might be extremely lonely and all these young people will be running around with better things to do. So we'll need... Some kind of computer companion. <laughs> Interesting. I was interviewed by someone at Berkeley probably 18 months ago, and she posed to me that artificial life just sounded like it was from the 1950s, that it was just a group of old men that kind of went off to their sheds and tinkered in order, as you say, to create some kind of virtual companion now. Frankenstein. But I think the idea of what we as artificial life developers get out of artificial life is in some regard linked to that. What's your thinking on that, Gerald? What do we get out of it? Well, I can't speak for all of us, of course. I guess I can only speak for myself, but uh, 
what I get is the uh, the only pleasant surprises from a computer. All the other surprises from a computer is that something crashes. And and when you run artificial life stuff or when you're running an evolutionary algorithm, you also get surprises from your computer, but they're positive surprises. That's an interesting analysis. What's your thinking on that, Dave? Generally agree. There's the surprises that come from networked interaction with humans, but a life is a bit different. You might even be surprised in a bad way when your favorite life creature dies. But I thought there was also a long-term component to your question in terms of what's the long-term motivation of A-Life developers. What's your thinking on that, Dave? I mean, what are we going to see way down the road? That's pretty tough to predict, but I think we're going to see a major combination of A-Life with the physical simulation realm, where we're going to see like an A-Life that's based upon parts combined together almost of their own will like cells and it'll all be really believable and look very real but I'm not sure if by the time we're dead we're gonna see um, like an artificial life that is a human I think we might see more like a fish or or something like that now, in order for that to occur, are you talking about something that is coming back into science, or are you talking about something that is purely coming back into industry? I was thinking more, it's almost like an art-based industry where you'd see these things evolve, and the science would kind of come later because people would create these things, and then later on, scientists would study them. So this is the whole kind of reverse metaphor of science studying industry after the fact, which occurs in things like computer science, for example. I think that'll happen with A-Life, at least predominantly. So as A-Life, as an industrial positive, we already see examples of this in terms of game development. We see some examples of this in other technologies. I mean, my own experience with Noble Ape has shown Apple and Intel to use it to tickle various parts of their processes. So I do see that there is some initial feedback into industry, but how do you think that motivates what you were talking about in terms of the creation of, in one sense, virtual pets and in another sense, virtual humans? I think there's a fundamental desire in humans to have companions that are fun and they don't really talk back and they don't have to... They don't hit you and... Toward hyper-Tamagotchis. <laughs> Hyper-Tamagotchi. It's just a fundamental evolutionary desire of humans. It's part of the reason why we have dogs today, or the major reason, because we kind of imposed our, our natural or our selection on them. Okay, so Dave is talking about it. Uh, what, what artificial life people are doing is they're uh, creating pets. Yeah. <laughs> In, well, not all of them, but most of them. I think it'll be the major use of them for use of a life for humanity. What strikes me as interesting, which is a, in some sense a secondary byproduct, but this is also something in terms of the answer to the question of what do I see in the long term interest of artificial life. There is a social component to it as well to kind of move away maybe from some of the nihilism that they discussed. There are a group of people that is ever-expanding who are contributing and discussing and thinking about this in a way which I find positively reinforcing. I was talking to Gerald just prior to starting the podcast about discovering Freeman Dyson's work in talking about artificial life, and you find these scientists and, and thinkers that have referenced artificial life through some part of their career. Or, or, or at least used the phrase. Or not used the phrase. Because, because I think the definition is, is still pretty hard to pin down there, Tom. I mean, you know, people may have used the phrase, but, uh, you know, what's, what does it actually mean? Uh, that's what we started talking about with this, with this podcast. Why are we asking that question still? You know, it's not nearly as well defined. So even if somebody did use it 30 years ago, they may have been using a very different sense of the term. Well, what fascinates me in the Freeman Dyson example is that Jay Lemon has in fact taken some work of Freeman Dyson's and said this is describing artificial life. Freeman Dyson didn't use the term artificial life. If you take the view uh, that Chris Langton invented the term, then everything prior to Chris Langton wasn't using the term. But what, what Freeman Dyson was talking about 
was replicating cellular automata, building larger structures and these kind of elements, which is fundamentally what Dave's talking about as well. So there have been a lot of thinkers, and contemporarily as well. I mean, there are a lot of people that talk about artificial life but don't use the term artificial life. And that's what I think is fascinating, that in some regard, when I took on the editorial stuff with Biota.org, I thought, this is a term that has been deprecated through poor use in one extent and non-use in another extent. Let's get the term artificial life out and actively used to describe these things, which I think in our discussion, Gerald, we've, we've butted heads occasionally with regards to the use of the term artificial life and the overuse of the term artificial life. But, I mean, what, what's, what's your thinking on that? Well, I don't think it should be used ever twice in one sentence. Uh, so three or four times is just complete overkill. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people, when they say artificial intelligence, they really mean artificial life. And sometimes the other way around, too. Yeah, that's true too. I mean, I'm I'm experiencing a lot of stuff now in the in these at these academic conferences where people are talking about Bayesian networks and uh, you know neural approaches to things and whatever. And there there's all sorts of stuff that um, you know that's sort of in the same sort of terrain, but uh, but it isn't given that name because I don't think you can get away with a name. You know, in in, a, in an academic context, you can you can sit there and say I have uh, been working on a project of machine learning. And I'm able to get this machine to understand the behavior of this and this in this context, and uh, and then you've got your PhD. But you're not going to say, uh, you know, I've got this thing. I call it artificial life. Okay, well, how do you start writing about that one? Well, what was interesting in the interview with Mark Badeau was that he came back to it's what Chris Langton would have used the term to mean anyway. So it's an interesting reference with regards to Chris Langton that I wanted to talk about a little bit. How much is Chris Langton's definition and use of the term important to the contemporary use of artificial life? What was Chris Langton's term? Well, Chris Langton coined... Well, if you, if you believe this to be the case, I want to put a lot of caveats because a lot of people feel a lot of things. But if you believe that Chris Langton coined the term artificial life, he ha- meant... I, for me personally, it's not clear what he meant, and this is why I thought it was interesting talking to Mark Pato about that. It could well be that what he meant came to be defined uh, in the years after he meant it, you know? So maybe he didn't know what he meant yet, but he he sort of uh, he coined a uh, coined a term and started a conference series and uh, and a whole bunch of uh, stuff came out of it and 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 acquired that name. You know, it's maybe he didn't know what he was talking about then. But anyway, I remember seeing him uh, talking uh, at the conference Biota Biota Two in uh, Cambridge, and uh, it was quite a nice nice performance that he did because he got an overhead projector and a pen and uh, transparencies and he just drew several. Uh, lines on on there and he said uh, okay here's where artificial life began and how long will it continue and how will it continue and he had a number of scenarios where human life would end and artificial life would continue or artificial life would end and human life would continue or they would both stop so he was looking at you know in on the sort of the long term at the time do you think in 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 a term sense that artificial life has died a death in some regard, like terms like virtual reality, where it became oversaturated initially and then fell off completely in terms of its academic use. Not really. I don't think a lot of people have even heard that term yet, artificial life. I think artificial intelligence has been abused to death, though. Do you think it's our role to evangelize the term artificial life? I, I, you know, you might. Uh, a lot of people would not really consider what they're doing to be artificial life, and then to come in and say, "Oh, yeah, you're doing artificial intelligence, and that means you're doing artificial life." They might look at you and say, "Are you serious?" Certainly, because uh, because you know, if you talk about life, then you're talking about uh, what exactly are you talking about? Are you talking about life, sort of, in general, not only biological life? Because if you're talking about sort of a biological sense of life, then you might think of artificial life as being sort of the the domain in which uh, that is imitated, like as if you would, uh, you know, be uh, be ever improving your skills to paint a landscape. This is the artificial life as art analogy, I think. And as uh, and as and as imitation. Very much so. Rather than uh, rather than as discovery, if you look at, for example, what Tom Ray did, you know, he uh, his whole idea was to say. Uh, Let's uh, let this evolution take place of these uh, pieces of software in the domain where piece of software feel at home. 
and he did the evolution in a completely sort of invisible domain of uh, like uh, core wars. You know, so they're just fighting for memory locations and fighting to replicate themselves and discovered a number of uh, phenomena a bunch of years ago. It, it does beg the question whether, and I think here of, and historically people like Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo, whether discovery could also come through art. What's your thinking on this, Dave? Uh, can you repeat the question, please? Well, the idea is that what we are doing is imitating, and that is analogous to art. But I think art has something which is which has the potential for discovery as well. If you look at uh, Michelangelo and da Vinci, and these are very classic examples of this. But I think in contemporary terms, there um, and it's a pity we don't have Bruce Damer on because the idea that Star Trek has motivated a lot of scientific development and the idea that science fiction motivates scientific development. The question is, can art motivate discovery? I think so. Well, Star Trek is art. If you... is, uh, is cubism a discovery? Well, this is an interesting thing. It's, it's the motivation versus the realisation. Can something motivate something, or is it purely the actual discovery itself? Play, uh, spending uh, several years of your youth in the future here playing with Spore will give you a very different idea of uh, you know, the origins of life. Just as a lot of the people that I've interviewed through the podcast have referenced all the Maxis products in terms of being fundamental turning points, they're playing with Simant and SimCity and things like that. But do you think there's potential... I guess in my own thinking in the Da Vinci example, there were points where what he was doing in his art was actually science in some regard. It turned into science. I think things have, things have changed a lot since then, Tom, a hell of a lot, especially in science. Science is done much more sort of regular, rigorously now and much more specialistic, uh, specialist, uh, you know. A PhD now is, is, a, is, you know, researching a small detail of something, and, and Da Vinci sort of was in a different domain. This is an interesting question because this is another thing that I get asked about with artificial life through the website, is this idea that artificial life, in fact, covers a number of different disciplines and that way it is very difficult to define either descriptively or academically. I have another question for you, if you guys want to take a shot at it. Certainly. Um, you know how we say what's the meaning of life and we can't even answer it? Well, what is the meaning of A-life? Do you think A-life is ever going to ask itself that? And what will it say? To uh, get these humans to take care of the computers that, uh, that are our substrate. <laughs> But what, what would they think is the meaning of their own artificial life? Survival. And, and say, they, say they accomplished survival and they've mastered it. Are they going to just keep asking themselves this question over and over? No, then they'll start, to, they'll start to do art. They'll start to do art and they'll produce biological creatures as, as artworks. That shows artificial life, though, moving through an industrial mechanism, and if it moves through a purely artistic or creative mechanism, then what is created initially in terms of asking itself the question will be very different than seeing artificial life as a, a, an industrial software or something like that. I mean, if you look at contemporary artificial life projects, the aspect of... It's like a flower, you know, they're trying... If artificial life was intelligent in that regard... The ability to be like a peacock or a flower in terms of getting human interest, in terms of motivating survival, would be the evolutionary mechanism in some regard, surely. So in that case, you end up with something which is so removed. I mean, if imagine that flowers or peacocks or things that were purely, and maybe I'm not thinking correctly, maybe humans are like this too. Maybe the humans that get to positions of power are in fact like flowers and peacocks as well. But uh, it's an interesting question that are we describing artificial life at the conclusion in asking this question as something which is purely industrial or should we take into account the successes that we see in artificial life in terms of things like games? Tess, Tom, can I ask you what you mean by industrial? I see in terms of purely serving humans' functional purpose. Okay, so utilitarian. Exactly, exactly. Sorry, that was... Yeah, industrial, to me, industrial to me suggests an entire, you know... Uh, period in history. Okay, my, my, my apologies, and I, I, I feel somewhat the same with regards to utilitarian, but it is in fact a better word in this regard. So, Tom, you're saying, you're saying that humans would be the selection pressure on artificial life? 
Well, in, in one model, yes, I can see that as being the case. Well, then the winners will be porn bots. And what will what will they say about themselves? Because if, if we're the selection pressure, though, then there's no true evolution. We're just intelligent designers, right? We're, we'll be gods. We'll be making the choices. Does it all become noise, which was my original question, that if you have people pulling it in all different directions, is it just purely noise versus intelligence? Uh, it might be interesting to see an A-life evolving in its own made-up world, and then it discovers like a, a crack and starts seeing the internet and all this data and all these zeros and ones, and it thinks it's this alternate dimension. And it discovers how to kill people, and it discovers how to kill people, and it starts to uh, threaten them or uh, or find ways to destroy their credit rating. The beauty with the contemporary internet is that it can you you could get imprisoned and and have your credit rating destroyed very easily by a machine. Currently, I'm not sure there's still a flux into death. Although with predatory laws going in particular directions, there, there may be the flux towards death. So, Dave, that was a very good question. Do you have any more of a similar ilk that you want to throw into the ether? My head. Gerald? Uh, I think we're pretty well talked out today. I have one I have one more question. We could talk about it for a little bit. What what processes are inherent in causing artificial life? And can we select a bunch of processes that will give rise to artificial life without actually trying to create our artificial life explicitly? I guess we kind of have asked that, discussed that. Well, in some different direction, I was watching Freeman Dyson uh, interviewed last night, and he was talking about quantum mechanics as a description of reality. And my thinking was, will there ever be a similar uh, analogous to quantum mechanics for biological reality? Is there something that's analogous? Exactly. We just set up a quantum, artificial quantum reality, and then A-Life just appears. God, that's going to be easy. <laughs> yeah, we should have done it already, shouldn't we? I mean, we're wasting time on this podcast when really we should have gotten that paper out, I think. I'm going to get right to it. Definitely. Let's just build that. <laughs> in, in conclusion to this podcast, I think this is going to be an issue, if we haven't catered to it in this podcast that we will certainly be re-exploring through future podcasts and I want to thank the, the listening audience for tuning into the musings of, of three armchair philosophers. I, I do encourage people to continue listening to the podcast because I want to get involved particular scientists that have particular interests in the areas that will be discussed as well. But thank you very much to you both for uh, attending this Skypecast. I also want to point out to the listening audience that they too can attend the Skypecast, they too can be participants, they too can throw out questions or talk about issues. They need to get in contact with me, however, in order to do this, tom at noble8.com. We've set up a mailing list, we've set up a wiki, there are multiple directions in which you can communicate on these issues, and we really do look forward to getting the collaborative, communicative component of the audience actively involved in this podcast series as well. I, I just want to plug your respective projects before we sign off. Gerald, darwinathome.org, what is new that's going to be happening in the next six months with that? What I'm working on now, like, uh, as I was said, the, 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 what, actually the fundamental thing, if I have to just say it briefly, and I think that's probably a good idea by this point, um, is to um, have, uh, to, to take the, the huge step. I can say it in a few words, but it's a huge step. Uh, I want them to interact with each other. Certainly, certainly. And I'd encourage you, to use other artificial life open source projects as well in terms of creating collaboration as well in that kind of interaction. I mean, I think that was kind of the thread of our discussion towards the end of last year and certainly through this mailing list as well for this podcast. But there are lots of great projects out there that give you an ability to construct interaction too. I'm thinking Breva in particular with what you're doing. And Dave, you've got a lot of exciting stuff coming up in the near future. Well, in about nine days, we're going to find out if we've got selected for this competition which has two million dollars worth of funding if we get in that we'll be on our way to having full-time employment but if we don't get selected for that i guess i'll begin working on the sequel to ai planet so good in both directions basically but better with the two million i'm sure what about uh, your projects there tom it's going to be an interesting six months. I have a master's student who's adapting various aspects of Noble Ape 
he wants to take ideas from Neat, and this comes from the Ken Stanley interview, and integrate it with Noble 8. But also he's fascinated with the kind of tactical component in warfare. I'm not sure if this means that Noble 8 will be used by the military in the near future, but he's interested in the idea of tactics in terms of a finite testing of artificial intelligence, primarily parameters. But he wants to use Noble 8 as a part of that, Neat as a part of that, and various other ideas of swarm intelligence and, and kind of command control issues as well. What's, what's, his, uh, what's his subject of study? Is it like computer science or not? Yeah, it's computer science, uh, but it's in computer science. My understanding is that it's it moves into game development in some regard, but he's still keeping it very grounded in um, you know potentially other applied areas. But he's fascinated both with visualization and with uh, artificial life, artificial intelligence ideas. So both of these things tick some boxes in Noble Ape, and I think he's starting to interact with Ken on that as well. But it's going to be a fascinating project in terms of, even if he moves in, and a master's project doesn't give a lot of scope in terms of doing you know, long-term profundity in some regard, but even if he moves it in a small direction, I think the collaboration with Ken Stanley's people, and for everyone who hasn't checked out the NEAT-related stuff, there's a mailing list which I think all artificial life developers should really aspire to. They get a about three to maybe seven to ten really good posts a week from various academics and hobbyists that are all using NEAT currently. And it's a fascinating model to watch move, particularly the people that are taking NEAT. Uh, I think in a, uh, I want to say industrial, but I will say utilitarian sense as well, I think the way it's used in industry will be fascinating. In terms of uh, other Noble Ape related stuff, personally I want to get Noble Ape used by other artificial life developers and this is something that I've talked about in terms of collaboration for years now from when I first started communicating with you Dave, uh, fundamentally. But I think the movement of Noble Ape into autonomous components that can be used for landscape visualization, for weather, for sentient entities in some regard, or actually literally ripping the Noble Ape brains out and putting different means of cognitive simulation, things like NEAT in, long-term genetic evolution, this kind of stuff, just all kinds of tinkering I see in the very near future. I've kind of resurrected the Ape Reality podcast as well, and I'm going to use it more as a kind of news recap on what's going on in terms of these projects. My mind has gone completely blank in terms of other things. Hey, hey Tom, can I, can I ask you a question? Certainly. I want to ask you a question that they always ask uh, when they're interviewing the band. You know, they say, so where'd you get the name for the band? Okay, so I want to know from you, where'd you get the name Noble Ape and, and, and uh, why is it Noble? Okay, well, the original, the original project, and this is some legacy stuff, so <clears throat> sit down for another 10 minutes, folks. The original project was called Nirvana, and I ran with the name Nirvana for about seven years. And then, and now this is in public domain because the other parties have written about it. Then some Microsoft fellow decided, because he was in Seattle, that he wanted to own the name Nirvana and started filing a whole lot of trademarks and doing other nonsense in Seattle. So that kind of went on for about three and a half years. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm just wasting far too much time dealing with the bureaucracy associated with maintaining this name that although I feel very passionately about... I've just got to cut, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge time vacuum and this fellow had lots of people working for him and lawyers and had a limitless sum of money and I just thought, even though I've been developing Nirvana for probably five to seven years longer than this fellow's had the trademarks and, you know, I was dealing with a lot of bureaucracy, so I thought the name had to change. And the issue with Noble Ape is the creatures have always been called Noble Apes. Now, reflecting on how the name Noble Ape came up, I was living if we, if we talk about the kind of the nihilism that Dave was talking about a little earlier with regards to artificial life developing development, I had moved uh, when I created the all the names that came out of Noble Ape from my home environment to living in exactly the same city but surrounded by uh, people that were in some regard hostile towards me while living on campus and it was a strange kind of renaissance in my own thinking and all these names came out over that period. So I can't put my finger on when the name Noble Ape actually occurred or why it occurred. But it struck me that what I was trying to do with the development was a degree of hobbyist tinkering, armchair philosophy fundamentally. And the name kind of came out of that. If you're going to have creatures wandering around, I didn't want to call them humanoid. I didn't want to call them all these kind of things. I've always liked the better use of the term noble rather than noble man 
versus uh, an idea of, of what nobility was. And I thought, well, there's a kind of armchair nobility to what's being done, and that's how the Noble Ape name came about. So the switch from Nirvana to Noble Ape took about a year, and now I'm completely at home with the name. It's very interesting when you develop these kind of projects, the name of the project is a large portion of the project. You hear people at Apple Computer, for example, talk about the creation of the name Apple and these kind of things, and I have found that with Noble Ape. So, uh, Gerald, I've probably completely blown out of the water your initial idea of a question, but that, that's the that's the short answer. What was that I asked? <laughs> For more of these kind of discussions in the near future, the next podcast topic, I believe, is going to be whether artificial life is science or art or a wide variety of other things, which we've almost covered in this podcast, so we may actually modify that, but I think there's still areas to cover, particularly getting real-life, living, breathing scientists involved in the discussion, and I think also possibly real, living, breathing artists as well. So, with the view that we'll get artists and scientists involved, I do hope the listening audience does tune into the next podcast. Thank you very much for tuning into this podcast, too. Thanks, Tom.